All right, good morning. Welcome to Haven Ridge this morning. It's good to see everyone on this first Sunday of May. Give a couple of quick announcements as we get started. Just a reminder, parents, three and four-year-olds, after we dismiss from the children's moment, the three and four-year-olds will meet their teachers at the back door. Uh, well, they'll, they'll, yep, this morning, um, meet at the back door where they'll go downstairs for snacks, and then they'll be outside for a lesson and uh, in a time of activity. So just a reminder, that is a shift to our, uh, our previous schedule, all right? Um, also, May 4th is the abortion bill uh, rally down in Columbia. If anybody's is still interested in going to that and uh, wants information as far as carpool, um, see Antoine um, or Austin Hammers uh, about uh, those, those details if you have questions. Uh, also, there will be a missions team meeting following the service, uh, so you guys stick around uh, for that. If you're on the missions team or if you are interested at all in missions or, um, uh, or being a part of that team, certainly stick around as well. Uh, May 15th, that's our fundraiser barbecue and yard sale. Um, so that's coming up quick. If you want a plate uh, of barbecue, if you want to reserve a plate of barbecue, they're $10 per plate. See Jamie or Stephen uh, to let them know. Jamie said they would like to have a head count at least of people within the church who want a plate um, by next Sunday so they know how much to prepare. Um, and also, if you have uh, items from your home that you want to donate to the yard sale, bring them. You're welcome to stick them over here in this corner. Um, the only thing we've, uh, I think we've asked is if you have something that is of particular value that you want to reserve price on it, you know, for whoever's bringing the yacht. Um, I've made that kind of a thing every week. So, you know, uh, if you've got something that you want, you have a reserve price on it, just, you know, put a pin a note or something to it and just put a reserve price, whatever you want on there. You know, if it's just a blank slate donation, don't worry about price or anything. Um, you know, just bring it, drop it off. Um, but y'all are welcome to go ahead and bring those items and bring them here. Um, so, uh, and then just a reminder, this, uh, the yard sale and the fundraiser, the money that is, that will generate from this will go back into our church savings account, which will just recoup the savings we pull out of it in order to, uh, in order to secure the, uh, the women's shelter home through Miracle Hill Ministries that we've uh, that we've been able to um, to I'm gonna say acquire but adopt that's the best word yeah that we've been able to adopt uh, so that's that's the purpose behind uh, this this fundraiser all right and then also um, so we'll we'll be we're two weeks into our marriage series um, we've got two more uh, two more weeks and then uh, after that um, we've asked Jake uh, Jake Elliott to um, uh, to, to, to come in and, and preach. Um, as you know, a kind of a drumbeat within Havenridge is to raise up leaders within. Um, and we've had several folks within the church that we've asked to just come in and preach, uh, not because Alan are necessarily going to be absent, but we want to give that opportunity to people who have displayed, um, you know, a passion and even gifting for preaching and teaching. Now, that, this doesn't necessarily mean that, hey, we're looking for, you know, new elders or anything like that. We just want to be faithful elders for raising leadership up within. And one of the key aspects of that is just thinking towards the future, you know, for when the time would come to, you know, bring on new elders or even if, you know, those who are called to be pastors, maybe not necessarily here, but would go out and serve somewhere else. Um, so uh, we've asked Jake to do that. So that'll be coming up the 23rd of June. So uh, mark your calendars for that. Be here to support him, be encouraged through the word. 
All right, I think that's it. Anything else? Alan, just a reminder, take a look who's, uh, uh, who's not here this morning. Uh, whether you know why they're here or not, take an opportunity to reach out to them this week. Send them a text, call them, and say, hey, how are you doing? Missed you this Sunday. How can I pray for you? All right, well, our call to worship this morning comes from the book of Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 6, verses 12 through 13. Uh, Alan's going to be preaching on the roles in marriage. And I thought it was appropriate that as we think about m- roles within marriage, that we look at Christ's uh, role and we're reminded of the dual role of king priest that he serves. And this prophecy was given in Zechariah 6, 12 through 13. Then say to him, the, the, uh, the prophet was, at, was told to make a gold crown, an ornate crown, and put it on the head of the high priest uh, as a symbol. And he said, uh, and, and the prophet's given this instruction. Then say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will bear the glory and sit and rule on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. Let's pray. My God, what a, what a blessing it is to live this side of the cross be able to see the Old Testament promises of, of the branch, the root of Jesse who would come and who would serve that dual role that no mere human could. Who would be a king? King full of glory and honor. Who would establish and secure the temple in heaven. Would enter, as Hebrews says, as a forerunner for us going within the veil. And he would be a priest. He would minister on our behalf. He would come before you and say, Behold, I am the children whom you have given me. Lord, what a wondrous gift it is to have faith, to know Jesus, to see him high and lifted up. He who is our King, and who also is our priest. And that we, why would we go in search of any other? So Lord, as we come this morning, Father, would you be pleased to be in our presence, that your spirit would be stirred amongst us. And that, Father, you would lavish on us the riches of your grace. Our affections for Christ would be stirred, Father. We would be humbled. And Father, we would give you all the glory you deserve. You deserve. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Aaron and April said they wouldn't be here this Sunday. I told Aaron he's not allowed to go and play guitar for any other church worship services, and he didn't say anything about it until I started probing a little bit, asking where they were going to be. And so that's exactly where he is. But it is, I think, I think it is, huh? I know, I know. I think it's... It's it's his mother-in-law's birthday, so the request was for for his sister Shelby and Aaron to play at to play a song at their church. So uh, I said whatever, you know. So 
birthdays get in the way of Jesus. So um, if, if Aaron watches this online, that's why I'm saying this, just to shame him a little bit. So, um, And I also want to say that I am excited about Jake uh, preaching in a few weeks, not to put any pressure on him. He's got some sermon title ideas. If you want to talk to him about those, you certainly may, or just <laughs> scroll through my phone and get a good laugh. Um, but, uh, but the last time, I guess... I heard Jake preach in an official capacity or in a training kind of capacity was when he was about maybe 16 years old. So uh, it was, uh, we were in a big giant auditorium. I said, Jake, get up there and preach your sermon, man. And I sat out in the crowd and it was something. It was something. Uh, so that was the rehearsal, but then you preached for the youth. So Jake, we're excited to have you come up and do that, man. Um, you know, if you need any help, ask Austin, you know, so uh, we're, we're excited about that. So let's stand together and let's, let's worship. Alone in my sorrows, dead in my sin Lost without hope, with no place to begin Your love made a way to let mercy come in When death was arrested and my life began Ash was redeemed, only beauty remained My orphan heart was given a name My morning grew quiet, my feet rose to dance
See you.
All right. Well, kids, if y'all want to come on down front. Come on. Come on down. Sit down. Spread out. There we go. It's good to see everybody this morning. How's everybody doing? Good. Are you excited for summer to be here soon? Can't wait. Right? Yes, and then your reward is summer after that, right? After state testing. <laughs> All right. Well, we've been talking about the third person of the Trinity the last several weeks, okay? So to remind me one more time, there's three or four. Four persons in God? How many? Three. Thank you. Three. God the... God the... And God the... Holy Spirit. There we go. There we go. So we're talking about God the Holy Spirit. Okay, and last week we talked about how the Holy Spirit gives us new life in Christ. Okay, and what that means. All right, what that means to have a new life in Jesus because through faith in Him. Well, this week we're going to talk about one of the other things that the Holy Spirit does, which it unites us together in Christ. Okay, and the Bible has two word pictures that it uses to kind of help understand this. Now, if you know me, you know I love word pictures. Okay, so these two word pictures are family and body. How many of you have family? Good. How many of you have a body? I'm a little concerned. There. Okay. You got it. <laughs> okay. All right. So we understand these. Okay. We understand these. Now, bodies aren't perfect. Families aren't perfect. But everybody has those in one form or another. So we can better understand what it means when the, Holy, when it's, when the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit uniting us together in one body and one family through Christ. Okay. And that's one of the things that the Holy Spirit does is when you come to faith in Christ and you, and you see your need for him, you put your trust in him and he gives you a new heart, changes your affections, changes your desires. Okay. You no longer are running from God or you no longer are trying to make God conform to what you want. Okay. But you're submitting to his law and his rule and you want to follow after him. Okay. And Jesus is then the model. So you love the things that he loves and you're not perfect. Okay. You're still sinful, but forgiven grace and mercy are the drumbeats of your life. Okay, so when that happens, one of the things that God does, this is the amazing work of the Spirit, is he takes you, and you, because you, when you have faith in Christ, you put your trust in him, those things change, and then he puts you in the context, and puts you in, in relationships with other people who look different than you, okay, but they have those same new affections, okay, they've been saved too, and that's what the Bible calls, that's the family of God. Okay, or that's the body of God. So let's look at that real quick, okay, and what, what, that, what that looks like, that, that God has put us into a new family. John writes this in his first letter. He said, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world doesn't know us is it doesn't know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But what we know is that when he appears, we'll be like him because we'll see him just as he is. All right? So, that, so one of the things the Holy Spirit does is teaches us that God is our father now. We're, he's no long, we're no longer his enemy. No. We're not even best friends. We're be, he's better than that. God is our father to us. So we can look to God as our father and, and what it means for him to lead us and shepherd us. Okay? The Bible also talks about us having a spirit of adoption, okay? How many of you, how many of you know someone who's adopted? Or is anybody in here adopted? I don't necessarily know. You do? Okay. So you, do you have friends or know somebody who's adopted? Okay. Okay. Her, her, 
Okay, her position's a little different. Okay, but very similar. Close enough. Okay, you know. Okay, that's good, good. All right, so when someone's adopted, they're brought into a family that's not their biological family, right? Yes, you have friends. That's great. Okay, they're brought into a family that's not necessarily their biological family, okay? They don't belong there by birth, but you know what? Someone sought them out, chose them, and said, I want you to be part of this family that's not your own, okay? Where we hope love and peace and joy are all experienced in that family context, okay? And this is what God uh, tells us, that when we're brought into the family of God, we don't belong there. We don't belong there. We weren't, we weren't there by birth. Even if you grew up in the church, like many of you are, you, you'll realize you don't belong there. And yet, God chose you. God chose you to save you through Christ. You put your faith in Him and He changes your affections. Okay, that's grace. That's getting what you don't deserve. Okay? And He puts you in context with other people. All right? And that's where love and joy and peace, those things are all experienced in the body when the body is healthy and it's functioning rightly. Okay? Here's what Paul wrote to the Romans. He's talking about the spirit of adoptions. He says... For all who are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Okay? There's that family language again. Right? For you did not receive a spirit, the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption. Okay? Do you see that? It's one of the roles of the Spirit is to confirm that spirit, that, that sense of adoption, understand what it means to be adopted into the family of God. You've received that spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Do you know, anybody know what that word Abba means? Nope, that's a, word that, that, that's a word that in the biblical language, it means daddy, okay? That's a warm term, right? Okay, that's a, that's a warm, very warm, very, very tender term, right, to say daddy, okay? So that's what Paul is saying is if you're in Christ, if you're a believer in Christ, you're in, you're, you're in amongst a family of God where there are other children of God and, and God is your father. He's your daddy. There's a warm, tender affection there between you and God. Okay? So the Spirit does this work. It unites us together as brothers and sisters in Christ with God as our father. Okay? And that's not a, and again, that's a, that's a warm, tender feeling that God has towards us. Okay? Now, the Bible also says that God disciplines those whom he loves. Okay? For our good. So that's not just, a, you know, I'm going to go to daddy and get whatever I want. That God then leads us because we trust that he knows what's best for us. Okay? Well, and the last one, the last example, okay, is that of, uh, of the body. Okay? Paul wrote this to the Corinthians. He said, for in one spirit, we've all been baptized into one body. Whether Jew or Greek or slave or free, we're all made to drink of one spirit. Okay? And so two things that Paul tells us and when he talks about the, the church as a body, okay, is we're united together. And this is what the spirit does for us okay one is that all the body the body needs the other parts okay all right how many of you ever walked into a dark room and you're trying to find a light switch right is it hard to find a light switch in a dark room especially if you don't know where it is why that's right you can't see it okay in a sense your eyes are blinded you don't have the light to be able to see so your hands can't do what they need to right 
okay? You need, you need the light switch, okay? You need something in that room, but you can't see. So the, eye, so the hands need the eyes, all right? Well, what if you had no hands? You could see, you could sit down and see food at a table, but could you pick that food up and eat it? I'm sure you could go, right? Okay, Calvin's like, I've done that before. Yeah, okay, but the, the, the point is, the eyes, or the hands need the eyes, right? So all the different parts of your body, they need each other, right? The hands need the feet, okay? The feet need the hands. The nose needs the head, right? Okay, when we could do this all day long. Okay, but you get the point, is that the body, each part needs one another, Okay, and this is part of Paul's point, is that the body of Christ, when we're united through that spirit, we're made to drink of one spirit, okay, that the body is, works together. Okay, so each part of the body needs one another. All right, so if you're in Christ, you have an important role to play within the body of Christ, okay, within, within that family, okay, and, and we need one another. Okay, the other point is that those who come together in Christ, they often are different backgrounds, okay? When Paul says, okay, that uh, he says, for in one spirit, we're all baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greek, slave or free, okay? He says that there are gonna be people that you meet who love Jesus, love the church, know grace and mercy, but they look very, very different from you. They may have a very different skin uh, skin color. They may have a very different cultural background, you know, they may wear clothes that you're like, that's really crazy, okay? They may have tattoos all over their body, and you're like, okay, that's a little different. You know, they, they may look and act very different from you, but their affections for Jesus are the same. Inside, their hearts are the same, and that's what unites us, okay? That's that commonality that we have and our love and our joy with one, with one another, okay? So lastly, just kind of to summarize, okay? This is what the Spirit does when it unites us, okay? It, it's come to unite us to God, all right, but also to come, he's come to unite us to one another in Christ, okay? And that picture of family and what it looks like and that picture of a body and how the body works together, being united, all right? Big ideas, I know, I know, big ideas. We got one more chapter on the Spirit, okay, and how the, the Holy Spirit fills believers to follow, to follow Christ, okay? So that'll be next week. All right, well, let me pray for us and you guys can be dismissed. How many three and four-year-olds we got? Three and four-year-olds? Okay, all right, three and four-year-olds. Okay, if you're going, you can meet your teachers back there at the door. Okay, teacher Shannon and Stephen, y'all meet them back there. Okay, you guys will meet them back there for your class time. All right, let me pray for us, okay, and then you guys can be dismissed. Father God, Lord, we thank you. Thank you for your spirit that you've not given us a, if we have faith in Christ, you've not given us a spirit of fear, of fear of God, but you've given us a spirit of adoption. Father, through the grace given to us in Christ, we can come before you and call you daddy, call you father. There's warm affection there because of the love that you have shown us in Christ. In Christ, what greater love has anyone than this that he laid down his life for his friends? And Jesus did one further. For a good man, someone will surely die. But for his enemy... That is what Jesus did. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So Father, I pray for these ears that have heard this message this morning, young and old alike. Father, you would tune their hearts to seek Jesus and know him, Father. They would see their need for Jesus, that apart from him, they're separated from the, fa- from the family of God. They're outside of that family. 
but through faith in Jesus, they're brought in, given a spirit of adoption. So, Father, would you do this work in these young minds this morning, in these young hearts. Father, save our children, that you might be glorified as you bring more into the family of God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, you guys can be dismissed. Thank you. So a special thanks to all of our children's helpers, children's volunteers. It's uh, it's no small work that you do. Kelly, thank you for orchestrating and ministering with your team, all these things. Uh, it's It's really nice to be able to kind of have an idea of what's going on, but not have to worry about administrating all those things. And uh, Kelly and the, the team have done a fantastic job. Uh, we're still working on the whole getting back at Little Me Academy, you know, working with that whole situation. Um, and so just uh, be patient as we're having to. So let's stand together.
Let's pray. Father, as we sing that song and we're reminded of the picture that's given to us in Revelation, the seraphim singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, and worthy is the Lamb. It's a reminder to us that that is the song we will sing for eternity. When all is said and done, when history comes to a close, and all the redeemed church of God are saved to sin no more, that we will sing that song. At the marriage supper of the Lamb, we will celebrate Jesus and we will say, worthy is the Lamb. We'll sit around a table and share with one another people we know and people we've never met before. And we'll say, worthy is the Lamb. And we'll point, we'll say, worthy is Him. Him who sits on the throne. Because His obedience to the Father. Because he humbled himself and he laid aside his, his privileges. He took on flesh, lived and walked amongst us. Lived a holy, perfect life in obedience to the Father. To the point of death on a cross. That his enemies might be reconciled to him might be given new life through his spirit might rightly reflect the image of God they were created for in the first place Father this is the song we will sing and this is the message that that we're to give while we're here so, Father, may, may our lives echo that. May they echo mercy and grace to those who are around us, Father. And the way that we live and the way that we treat our children and the way we treat our spouses and the picture of our marriages and the way we treat co-workers and neighbors and where we fail, Father, may we admit it readily and may it make grace and mercy of Christ, the grace and mercy of Christ all the more sweeter. Father, as we do this at home, may the missionaries we support in Bangladesh, in Ireland, in China, Father, whether they're able to be present in those countries now and minister to those who are in need or whether they are for one reason or another physically removed from the places they long to be a minister in, Father, may their lives constantly reflect that Jesus is worthy. That Jesus is better than anything else promised in this life. And that they would be faithful to exalt him in word and in deed in all that they do, Father. That we all might, as the unified church, sing worthy is the Lamb. So, Father, now as Alan comes, brings your word, Father, would you touch our hearts where we need it most? that we would can be conformed more and more to the image of Jesus with each passing day. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.
when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no work there's no man to work the ground and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first was Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gion. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river was Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds in the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was, no, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is at last, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. So I wanted to bring us back to Genesis for just a moment, because we're going to be in Ephesians 5 today. But to bring us back to Genesis, just like we did last week, because this is where the beautiful design all took place. This is where the paradigm of marriage was written, was not described, to be very clear, but prescribed. This is where it all began. This is the model. This is the template. This is the pattern for all of time. All of time. And this is where it began. So it's important that we look at this and we see that before the fall, God had made this design. And before the fall, that this design included a man and a woman having their respective and distinctive roles by which and in which they would exist in a complementary relationship. Not as unequals, but as equals who are fit together 
to accomplish a greater task that's far beyond just marriage itself, as we looked at last week. And so just to remind you, as we're looking at this today, marriage is representative of not only the gospel and not only Christ's relationship to the church, but also the Trinity itself. If you miss that, you can listen to that sermon or you can ask me a question. I'll send you my notes on that. I think there's a very, very strong argument to articulate marriage representing the triune God. So this is where it begins, and I say this because you will talk to people, especially when you get into distinctive roles, which have been flipped on its head today, because shortly after this, with sin came the first feminist movement that worked to destroy the design that God has made, and we're still there today. I'm all for feminism to a degree in biblical terms. I'm all for that. But in the way that the secular world has touted feminism is ungodly and it's unbiblical. So I need to know now, do I need to put a cage up here before I continue in case any women want to throw stuff at me? I just need to be prepared for that, you know. Uh, I'm not a bar hopper, but I've heard that there are bars where they are a little unruly and maybe they have a cage that the that the musicians have to play behind in case beer bottles are thrown. Um, I don't think that that's necessary, but as I was taking these notes this week, I was like, well, I need to make sure that I deliver these things with, with, with conviction and with compassion and with great humility. So having said that, not, in a, not by way of false humility, but as I'm studying and preparing for this and as I've you know, talked about these things before, as I've done premarital counseling, as I've done marital counseling, I'm always reminded that I'm really not fit to be the guy to do those things. And this is not a false humility. You know, I think anybody should say, I'm really not fit to be the person. I'm really not the one to do that, you know. Um, do you think Peter really felt like he deserved to be the rock? You know, do you really think that he deserved to have the accolades? Do you really think that he thought that way? Absolutely not. There was a humility there. So I find myself a lot like Peter in many ways that I'm broken and I'm always failing and I'm always making mistakes. Yet God allows me to be in these situations that I don't deserve and it humbles me. And that's how I feel today. So I want to be very clear that when I talk about these role distinctions, when I talk to you men about how you should conduct yourself with your wife and women, how you should conduct yourself with your husband, that's not because I have this experiential wisdom. That's not because um, I'm the poster child for these things. It's just because that's a situation that I'm in. God, is, God has ordained that I would be a shepherd to equip the saints for this body, for this fellowship, for this church, for this community. And I'm just doing my best to understand these things. So in many ways, do as I say, not as I do. If you have a conversation long enough with my wife, and if she's very honest with you, she will point to many, many failures in my life. So this is not coming from a place of success. This is coming from a place of humility, okay? So not to say that anything I say is going to be necessarily hard or offensive at all. But having set the stage with Genesis, let's move to Ephesians chapter 5, because you need to understand that just as Jesus spoke in Matthew 19, so Paul speaks in Ephesians. And what are they, in Ephesians, what is he leaning on? He's leaning on Genesis 1 and 2. Paul's hermeneutic, Paul's whole theological construct, in, in addition to Jesus, in, you know, introducing the Christological side of his understanding, Paul leans on the Old Testament. He leans on what God, who is immutable, God, who is unchanging, what God has patterned, what God has laid out, not just in terms of marriage, but in life, right? All the things that Paul taught on behavior, on life and conduct for the Christian. He's leaning on the teachings of the Trinity, okay? So that's pretty clear. So we're in Ephesians chapter 5. But before I read that, let me just kind of say a few things by way of further introduction. 
with marriage usually comes a change in allegiances. Now, if you're looking at first century marriage, it's much different than 21st century marriage. Uh, Sometimes for better, sometimes for worse, right? In a first century, a woman was pretty much, in a sense, bound to her biological family. There she, was, she found provision. She was taken care of. This was not necessarily a bad thing. This wasn't necessarily a, 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 a denigration or a marginalization of a woman, although that happened. Don't get me wrong. It absolutely happened. But this was more of a cultural construct that helped look after to woman, the woman. Now, when the woman got married, she was then taken care of by her husband. Okay, so that's what would happen. Things happen a little bit differently now, I would say, right? A lot of times women, they, and men for that matter, but women specifically, they, you know, they graduate high school, they go to college, they get jobs, they kind of become a self-made woman, you know, uh, just like maybe we would say we become self-made men if there really is such a thing. There's grace-made, not really self-made. There's self-made problems we get ourselves into. But, But getting back to it, so things look a little bit different. So maybe women are career-driven, and they go and get their career, and they kind of put marriage back here, okay? And I'm not saying that's right or wrong. That's not the point. The point is the paradigm has shifted a little bit. It's a little bit different, you know, because we've had thousands of years, you know, of, of change. Thousands of years of things have taken place. This is not a sermon to say women can't have jobs. Nope, <laughs> not at all. This is not a sermon to, you know, tout my chauvinism. Not at all. You know, that's not it at all. I think there's a right and proper way to handle these things. My wife, my wife is a very successful, very competent nurse, a tremendous aptitude, a tremendous skill set in what she does that I could not do, you know, I absolutely, and there's, you know, so, so there's a, something that she brings to the table in our family that I cannot bring to the table in our family, you know, does it mean that I don't want you to have a job because in order for you to be a godly woman, in order for you to be a godly wife, you need to stay home. Let's just read Proverbs 31, you know, where's your spindle? Where are you, where's this happening? That, that's a misappropriation of these things. There's a sentiment that, that emerges from those kind of passages that talk about a disposition in a woman, a character in a woman, a quality in a woman, that no job, that no friend, that no husband or anything like that should taint or disrupt because there's a godly woman who can have a job. There's a godly woman who can be a successful career woman, but not at the expense of forsaking what you will ordain to do and be as a woman, specifically as a wife. Okay, so now that we're getting warmed up with the offense level, with marriage usually comes a change of allegiance in the first century. I've explained this all the way to the 21st century, so things have changed. But let me say this, an overemphasis on the quality between men and women, although that's appropriate to emphasize this. I will say it throughout, but I want to be very clear, just in case someone falls asleep or you miss it, there is an equality. God made them male and female, both made in the image of the triune God, both image bearers. It didn't say I made a servant for him. It didn't say I made a, uh, um, an inferior being to be a helpmate to Adam. It just said I made a helpmate in my image, right? So Austin and I are, as far as the way we view church polity, we are both elders. We don't have a hierarchical structure here. I was raised in that. I don't see it as biblical. We don't have a hierarchical structure. We have a plurality of elders. One day to hopefully add more elders. We are co-equal. If I've never been very clear about that, let me be clear now. He is not second to me. 
I am not second to him. Maybe I preach more, but that has to do with schedule. That has to do with availability. That has to do with he has a full-time job. I'm a hole digger. It has to do with all those things, okay? I'm going to keep telling that joke, so just keep laughing. So it, it has to do with all those things. But we are absolutely equal, and we move forward together on things, even though sometimes we disagree. I eventually emerged the victor, but we, we disagree sometimes. But we move together on things, okay? So... I have to make fun of you a little bit because I'm going to compliment you later. It's in my notes. So here we go. I may cry, but we'll see. All right, here we go. So um, so there's an equality, but, but we, we have to be careful not to overemphasize the equality between man and woman at the expense that we minimize the unique distinction between the two. If all we do is herald equal, 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 then we run the risk of kind of joining that, that trajectory that, that ignores the distinction, that ignores those role distinctions, that ignores headship, and that ignores help mate. You see, they're different, right? And I told you last week how this, how we understand this in light of the Trinity is that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all same. There's a oneness, there's a sameness in a sense, but there's a distinction as well. Right? We would not say that God or the Father is better than the Son, no, but we would say that the Son subjects himself to the Father. So there's a role distinction, and there's a, there's a role there to, to, to image stuff for us to see in our marriages, ultimately, so that we may understand the right relationship between Christ and his church. So we don't want to minimize those role distinctions. There's a lot of things that I can say as I thought through this this week. There's a lot of practical outworkings that I'm going to kind of leave to the missional communities as far as, you know, what does it mean for a woman to be a helpmate? I know those things will be helpful to know, but I think first of all, we address the role distinctions as it as it pertains to helpmate and head, okay, because these are very important, because that's the very thing that's been flipped around. It's like God has made this beautiful tapestry, and then you've got these, these rogue threads that are constantly being woven that distorts the image, right? And so we want to avoid that. So here's my objective. I want to explore and explain to the best that I can the significance of the relationship as it pertains to leader and helper in a marriage context. Now, as I said last week, not everyone in here is married. Some of you have been and are not now. Some of you uh, um, might be soon. Some of you, hopefully, like my daughter, won't be for another 65 years, and that's fantastic. But it's important that you understand that everyone has a relationship to this ideal of marriage, whether you're in one or not. You know, some of you uh, have been in marriages that were very bad for you. You know, so you have that taste and that experience, you know, and that is devastating. But it's important to step back and say, why is this important for me? It's important that we have a right worldview so that we can help people understand, so we can help our little ones understand as they grow up what a right biblical marriage looks like. It's important that for you who are looking over the horizon at marriage that may not be so far away, that you as men can know how to properly love your spouse and to know what your role is, and for women that you can know what your role is in, in such a way that's God-honoring. So there's my objective. So a few things to go through today is, is first, um, I want to talk about this role distinction between men and women, and that being set before the fall. Cultural femininity, it does this. It rejects the idea of headship in the home. That is cultural femininity. It does reject that. And I don't, and I understand why. First of all, you have the fall of man, Genesis chapter 3. 
And God makes it clear to the woman, hey, this is what's going to happen. Things are going to be perverted because that's what sin has done. For the woman, he says, your desire will basically be to rule over your husband. That's where it all began, right? That's a product of the fall. Things were good before him because I've heard feminists argue before, evangelical feminists who have argued before that this whole role distinction thing, it happened post-fall. And that's, that's ridiculous. It's ridiculous because just look at Genesis 1 and 2. See what God told Adam to do and all of these things. And he brought this lady in, this woman in from him to be a helpmate to him, fit for him, a, perp- a perfect complementary scenario for him. And then you had this perfect outworking of their relationship. Have dominion. Do these things. Adam, you continue to work. Eve, you do these things. And then you have the fall. And that's when you see you will desire to rule over him. So you have this feminist movement in a negative sense that happens right out of the gate. And this thing has been perpetuated for years and years and years, even thousands of years until now. But cultural femininity rejects a biblical worldview with regards to submission and headship. It assumes... It assumes the inequality and the marginalization of women. And let me say to you women, if that was the reality, of course you would reject headship. If your husbands, all you ever got from them was that you were dehumanized, marginalized, and treated as a second-rate citizen, yeah, you would have a major problem with headship. So a lot of women have a major issue with that because of what they've witnessed. Maybe there's women that have witnessed a father. And I talk to a lot of couples about this when I have the opportunity. Because I want to know what some of these women think about headship. And I ask them their story. And I'm thinking specifically of a couple that, that, that we, we just did, I just did premarital counseling for. And so she tells me of her relationship to a dad. A dad that was a derelict father to her. A dad that didn't love her mother well, a dad that didn't love his wife well, and that's what she saw. Now she had, I, she, had, she, had she had sprinkles of headship because she was raised in an in a, in a evangelicalism, so she knew that headship was right, but she didn't know enough to put together that this is right, that's wrong. She just said, this must be headship, and if that's it, I don't want anything to do with it. So that's a worldview that we have to battle because sin has flipped everything on its head. And it's had about 6,000 years to continue to taint the waters. And so no wonder, no wonder we're in the middle of this real pandemic where, where there's actual you know, rejection of what God has designed. That's, that's a very real issue. But at the end of the day, it's a straw man because the Bible does not support the inequality or the dehumanization or the marginalization of women. So be careful because those are just straw men that are built up, meaning that something that, something that can be built to create a very strong, you know, but, but um, well, an argument that can, from our point, an argument that can be uh, torn down. Your marriage is this. It's to demonstrate that it is good to live under God's reign. So let's get into the, let's get into the, the, uh, the, the headship and submission role. So Ephesians chapter 5. Let me just read this for you. Ephesians 5, verse 22 says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. There you can see the link. This isn't arbitrary. This is pointing to something bigger, something better. It says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit in everything to your husband. 
We live under the supreme sovereign rule of God, the sovereign reign of God. And women, you have the opportunity in your submission to a husband, not that headship is always good, not, not that it's always demonstrated in a, in a godly way, but understand this, rather than looking at, oh, I've got to submit to this, to, this, you know, to this loon, you know, rather than thinking that way, who you see fail all the time, that's, that's the, the difficulty of, of marriage, is that no one knows your brokenness better than your spouse. You know what I mean? I mean, it's hard for me, you know, to, to, to rally the troops in my, in, my, in my living room. And I've talked to my wife about this, say, let's, let's have our family devotional. When I feel like the biggest hypocrite in the room, you know, because just hours before, they see me, you know, acting like a cantankerous old fool about something stupid. You know, like, hey, by the way, I know that I, you know, lost my temper, you know, and I, you know, and I, I said some dumb things. But uh, let's worship Jesus. Come on. Let's, let's come on, guys. Yeah. You know, who are you? You know, and so it's very, very difficult. It's very hard to do that because you feel like a phony all the time. You know, and it's not so far from being a pastor. You know, you know I have struggles in the morning, too, on the way here. You know, uh, I don't ride with my family here, but maybe we had an altercation at home. And then I got to come here and I got to stand behind a mic. I got to play behind a guitar and I've got to sing and I've got to help lead people in worship. This whole worship experience when I feel like a phony. And then I've got to open the Bible if that's not if the worship portion is not hard enough in song. Then I've got to preach on these things that I stink at keeping up with in my life. That's why this comes from a place of humility. This is not hey. Listen to me, I've got, you know, follow me, I've got all these, I've got it all right. This is, I know what's right, I just really stink at executing what is right. Well, we live under God's rule, and this is good. So women, back to the point before I chase that rabbit for just a second. Understand that when you subject yourself, as the scripture says, to your husband, what happens is you subject yourself to the reign of God. You're recognizing his paradigm, you're recognizing what he's constructed, what he's designed in this beautiful design as this architect. You're recognizing that. Even though you're both broken, even though it's very difficult for you to push past the difficulties of a husband who can be obstinate and problematic and inconsistent and hypocritical, even when you push past that, what it says to others is the value of keeping God's standard matters more than your own comfort. It matters more than your own selfish desires because it's not easy. I get it. The closest thing I can relate to, because obviously I'm not a woman married to a man. I mean, I've had bosses before. I have bosses now. Sometimes in the past, maybe not so much now, it's been hard to subject myself to that authority because maybe, you know, because you know, maybe they were unethical or something like that. Not that I subject myself in unethical behavior but respecting the office, respecting the position. These things are difficult, so I can't imagine how difficult it must be when God says, let me take you as a helpmate for him, as a co-equal, and I want you to follow him. I want you to subject yourself to him, submit yourself to him, follow his lead. When quite frankly, a lot of times we just stink at leading. So I know that it's got to be difficult, but the idea is to express the goodness of God's ideal design. In submission. This sermon is about role distinctions. The woman's role is that she is given as a helpmate, a co-equal to man. But this role is one of subordination, whereas the man's role is one of headship. Women, freedom is not lost with subjection in marriage. And you need to understand that. The world might tell you, especially an egalitarian, feminized society, may say to you, don't get married. 
don't get married, especially in some archaic kind of marriage paradigm context thing. You know, that's antiquated. It's ridiculous. It's meant to suppress you. It's meant to hold you back. Women have made so many strides over so many years. Look where we've come. Look where we've arrived. Look where we are now. How, how could I ruin all that progress with marriage? You see how sin has really tainted what is beautiful and what is a great design and flipped it on its head. So the idea is that you lose your freedom. But the reality is this, and I'm talking about a marriage context, not to you single ladies who are, who are thriving and doing well. I don't mean that in a marriage context for those of you that are in marriage or even a single lady that says, I'm not going to get married because my freedom is lost. Don't think of it that way. True freedom is only experienced under the rule and reign of God. Only in that true freedom is submission to the reign of God. It's freeing to trust in the sovereignty of God. How many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, but remember as a child going to, uh, going to a theme park or on some kind of vacation. Now, on this side of it, on the parental side of it, I know the stress. I, okay, I know some of the stress. My wife does a lot of those plannings, okay? So, but her stress stresses me out, so I get it, right? So it's indirect stress. So I understand that there's stress that goes in planning these things. There's stress in saying, okay, we're going to go here. We're going to go here. We've got enough finances to do this. You know, we've got to have meals planned. We've got to do this. Do we have gas money? You know, do we have taking time off? There's all of this in adult world that contributes to the stress of planning these trips that these kids are oblivious to the stressfulness of. They just enjoy it, ungrateful little things. You know what I'm saying? So, so that's what happens. So, so, well, we know the stress that's involved in these things. But as a child, I have so much more appreciation for my parents now because I thought, I, it was just easy breezy for me. I showed up and we went to Panama City a lot or we went to, you know, to, to, on this camping trip or we went to, to, to Miami, Florida and saw my aunt and just did and had fun and I didn't have a care in the world. They just told me where to go and I showed up. And maybe they'd let me buy a trinket or treasure from Alvin's Island, and I was thrilled, right? I didn't know that there was so much stress involved in these things. So it was freeing for me, looking back now. It was just freedom in saying, I trust in whatever you plan. I trust whatever you have orchestrated, whatever you've constructed, whatever paradigm you've set up, I trust that. And I think the same rings true for you ladies and for us men, but specifically as it relates to headship and submission, is that in submission to your husband, and we'll get to more of a definition of that in a minute because I think that matters. In submission to your husband, think in terms of the sovereign rule and design of God and that, you know what? <laughs> there is freedom in knowing that God has said these things are good. I'm going to pursue what he said is good. I'm going to pursue that ideal, and I'm going to find freedom in that. Rather than trying to figure out all the mechanics and all the what's hot and what's not of the headship submission role, just saying God has made this standard very clear. And let me pursue this and find ultimate freedom. Wives, submission to your husband is ultimately an act of submission to God. And you can trust that he will keep up his end of the bargain. You need to worry about keeping up yours in submission. So what does the Bible have to say about your role as a wife well, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Notice something about this text. It doesn't just tell you what to do, but it tells you the degree in which you are to do it. This is strong, and this is not easy. Wives, submit or subject yourself to your own husband as to what? As to the Lord. 
If I said, hey, ladies, raise your hand if you think absolute and total 100% subjection to whatever God says is right. Boom, hands would go up. Ladies, raise your hand if you think subjection to everything that your husband says is right. Probably some crickets. That was your cue, Austin Jowers. Thank you. So now there is the issue of what about a husband that is godless or is acting in that fashion, and his rule is bankrupt and bad. Now, for me, and I'll just say this as a side and we'll move forward, you know, we, we talked about submitting to governing authorities. We talked about their role, their function. If they're operating in their proper capacity, then yes, submit to those governing authorities. We also would say, I believe, if a husband leads well, you obviously fall. There are things that you follow no matter what, but if the husband tries to lead you down a path that is not Godward or Christward, then you rebel against that. Because, again, submit yourself as to the Lord. Your ultimate submission is to God. Okay, and I don't think we have to labor that point. I think that's pretty, pretty obvious. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. But it doesn't just say that, verse 24. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. In everything. There's another statement of degree. As to the Lord as in everything. Now, a brief note on that is this is not, don't, don't read this as the letter necessarily. As in you approach this and say, well, I don't have a mind of my own. I don't have anything. I just, I just mindlessly say, yes. You know, he tells me to jump. I say, how high? That's not what this means. There's an intention here behind the lettering of this. Wives submit in everything. There's a disposition there's a uh, uh, kind of a, a, a cognitive disposition, I would say, of readiness to follow. Not having reservations for yourself, not withholding and creating these caveats other than something that is unbiblical if he's leading that way. But this is a readiness to say, this is God's design, I'll do it. I'll do it. And by the way, this is a way to love your husbands well. Because what you're doing is you're providing a context as a helper to him that gives him the grace and the space to lead. And that is a loving thing that you can do for your husband. Because sometimes, sometimes we don't provide space for that. Sometimes women can become domineering, even the spiritual leaders. And sometimes it works out that way because they don't step back and give the man opportunity to lead. So you have to be very careful of that because you run the risk of emasculating your husband if you are the domineering spiritual head and give him no way or no room to step up and to live and to lead in the way that he's supposed to. Wives, submit to your own husbands in everything. Mature femininity is this. Submission should be defined not in terms of specific behaviors, but is a disposition to yield to the husband's authority and inclination to follow his leadership. There's a difference in our behavioral patterns and our disposition. Disposition leads to behavioral patterns. There's a danger if you're just responding. If only thing that happens in your relationship is behavior. You can become a robot. You have these conditioned responses. Yeah, I'm going to do it. But there's not a disposition of joy. There's not a heart motivation of love or definitely, most importantly, a heart motivation or disposition of glory to God in honoring Him in His, in His, in, in His beautiful design. So that becomes very problematic. So it's not just about behavior. 
I get it. Sometimes it's easy to do that. Yes, you're whatever. You know, I tell my son to take out the trash. I tell my son to do the dishes. You know, he does it. His disposition isn't always very great, but he does it, right? That's not what you're going for. And husbands, a part of your role is to help create a disposition of joy in your wife. So you're not off the hook. I'm going to come down on you in just a minute, okay? So, so the wife, the idea is not so much in your behavior because you get into this thing with, well, I mean, the Bible does say do everything without grumbling or complaining. If you're just saying, you know what, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do whatever, you know, I'm going to submit to this person you know there's a problem if you're just going through the motions then that's problematic the disposition needs to change so that's the idea of this mature femininity so you submit to your husband as to the lord and in everything there's your your statements of degree that make it very clear that you need to be ready to follow and give him the opportunity to lead as he's supposed to because what that's going to do and this is just pulling back the curtain a little ahead of time it's going to show to the world what the relationship between Christ and his church is really like. And that's what matters most in your marriage. That's what matters most in your marriage. Other things will fall into place if you are trying to show the world the affections that Christ has for his church. If that's what your relationship is modeled after. If that's the purpose and your intent. Other things will fall into place. I promise. This text should not be understood in this way. It should not be understood as though there's a, as, as a patriarchal society when men have absolute power. That's not the way we look at this. Wives submit. There was a guy that I went to seminary with. I came out of, uh, we, were at a, we were at a very large church, uh, a mega church in the area, 10,000 on a Sunday morning. And we stu- I stepped out and I heard this commotion going on in this giant commons area, thousands of people in this commons area. And I hear this screaming. I'm like, what's going on? And this guy from school who got kicked out of school, not because of that, but probably should have been, but he's, I hear, I hear submit, submit. I'm like, is there a UFC fight going on? What's that? You know, so he walks out and I hear submit woman. I'm like, oh, he's yelling at his wife in front of all these people, you know? So I punched him in the face. I didn't really do that, but that's what I wanted to do. I'm like, what is going on here? You know, I mean, I probably wouldn't have done anything if she had punched him in the face. I'm like, well, you deserve that. But this lady's broken. This man in front of all these people is screaming submit. First of all, you don't treat your wife like that in public. Second of all, you don't treat your wife like that, period, right? And so, but he's doing that, and I think he did get rebuked, and he may have been kicked out of seminary for that, but there were other crazy things that he was guilty of. That's not the idea, all right? It's not caveman club your woman on the head and bring her along if she's uh, a little cantankerous. This is not to be understood as making women inferior or unequal. Man and woman are, are equal in person unique in their distinctive roles. It's not to be understood in this way that subjection results in rebellion against God's word. Women do not do anything under headship that is contrary to the word of God, okay? To the word of God. Equality does not negate having complementary roles in marriage. All persons of the Trinity are equal, but Jesus clearly submitted to the Father. Complementarianism says that man and woman are given to each other to complement each other's roles in mission and submission, uh, in mission and submission headship. Women are not given as man, as not given to man as an accessory, okay? Women are not given to man as a trinket or as a trophy to show off when you're certain places, doing certain things. Woman was given to man as a part of him. He, she was taken from him and then given back to him to be a part of him, a co-equal, a helpmate, fit for one another. And it's, it's a custom fit. That's the beauty of this design. 
Yeah, we're broken. Yeah, we clash all the time. But we are custom made for one another. Submission doesn't mean agreeing with everything that your husband says, ladies. So I want to be clear of that. The wife in First Peter, she's married to an unbelieving spouse. And the instructions that Peter gives to her is like, look, you need to continue in this marriage. You need to love him so that you might win him with a word. So what is this woman in First Peter doing? She's evangelizing her lost husband. That's what she's doing. She's not going to agree, but does headship still apply? You better believe it applies. It absolutely applies. Now, it works itself out a little bit differently because you have a godless man that on occasion, I'm sure, is going to lead to things that are anti-God, anti-biblical. This wife needs to say things. This wife needs to push back in a right and respectful way. And this is all to keep the image intact. This is not to minimize women or to say, you know what, you respect. It's, a, it's about something bigger. It's about keeping the beauty, the image, the beautiful design of Christ in the church, the Trinity, the gospel. It's keeping the image intact. You are a means to an end. And I don't mean to minimize or marginalize humanity because we're the crown of his creation. But your marriage is a means to an end. The end being to represent the Trinity, the gospel, and Jesus and his church. That's a great blessed thing. Submission does not mean never trying to change your husband's ways or mind. Because as co-equals, it doesn't mean your, your wife doesn't come as an inf- inferior in intellect, inferior in spirituality. Women, that's not the idea here. When I say co-equals, I mean co-equals. You just have role distinctions. So I would be foolish to not listen to the counsel and the wisdom that my wife brings to the table in our marriage. That would be dumb of me. Because that's a part of being that helpmate, is that our minds work together, our lives are knitted together, we're fit together so that we can be on mission for something bigger than ourselves. This submission does not mean getting spiritual strength from your husband. Women, your, your, your husband does not fill your cup. If you're looking for spiritual vitality through your husband's spirituality, you will, be thir- you, you will thirst or you will starve. Because that's not what it's meant for. You have an individual relationship with Christ. It's not a vicarious relationship with Christ. You have an individual relationship with Jesus. So where the husband should be the leader, where the husband should create the context and the culture for spirituality and godliness and holiness and biblical truth in the home, it doesn't mean that you're a, 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 you know, just a stander by or someone who's an outlier, someone who just sits out on the side and just lets things happen. You contribute. You're a part of that. And you have your own place and your own role to fill, especially with regards to your own growth and spiritual wellness as a, as, as a Christian. So this text should be understood as submission is not a sign of inferiority, but of obedience. Submission is not a sign of weakness, but a sign of holiness. And submission under proper authority should be a joy. It should be good. If your husband loves you in that, he leads you well, ladies. And all the way, I mean, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. We'll get to that small mandate in a minute. If that's the way your husband's loving you, and you're not joyful about that, there's major problems. Either you don't get Christ's relationship to his church, you're not a believer, or something's going on. That should bring you joy if your husband loves you rightly in that way. Sin has marred these role distinctions God said, you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. That's 
the curse. Sin has its effect. You know, that word desire, by the way, it's the same Hebrew term used for Cain's sin. For Cain's sin, it's the same word, that desire. Desire is for you. It's the same word that's used for Cain's sin that's then given to Eve when he says you will desire control for your husband. The result is the wife resists authority and the husband abuses authority. This is what sin has done. The wife resists and the husband abuses. Not that authority is wrong, but the abuse of it is wrong. Men abuse authority because they're self-interested and women reject submission because they are self-willed. Let me, let me say a note about the godly wife. Wives, subjecting yourself to the leadership of your husband doesn't negate your spiritual depth, your aptitude, or your voice. Being a helpmate has everything to do with being the, outpour, uh, everything to do with being the outpouring of your love, spirituality, and wisdom over your husband. However, some women become spiritually domineering, which serves to emasculate the husband in terms of his leadership role. Make sure that you leave room for your husband to lead. Even if your husband is quiet, if he's passive. God has given him a personality just like you, and that's fine. That's fine. Encourage leadership. Help in setting your husband up for success as a leader rather than oppressing that leadership because your personality drives you towards a more domineering construct in your marriage the godly wife should picture or image what it looks like to submit to christ's authority and the godly husband should picture what it looks like to exercise authority as christ does i'm going to move quickly through this the headship of the husband should be reflective of his relationship to christ or the church's relationship to christ so what does Ephesians say about the man? Very simply, it says, wives, submit to your husband. Then it says, for the husband is the head of the wife. It says, husbands, love your wives in verse 25. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So we see a sacrificial aspect of this love. We see a selflessness leading to sacrificial aspect of this love. Husbands are to love their wives with an agenda, men. This isn't arbitrary. We love with intent. We love with an agenda. I mean, as Christ loves the church. You know, you know, without a show of hands, women, do you really want that responsibility? Do you really want to have that responsibility of leading and then you have to answer to God for your family? You know, think about that. You know, before feminism and egalitarianism pushes us too far, right? Be careful. Because it scares me to death that I have to answer to God not that he's going to cast me away, but that I'm going to have to give an account for all the failures in my marriage. I mean, God approached Eve, or God approached Adam when Eve sinned. Does that not strike you as strange? Why do you think he did that? Because Adam's the head. Because Adam has the authority. Now, does that mean, men, if you say, you know what, I think, honey, if you do that, I think it's sinful, don't do that, and they do it, that mm, you're going to get a smack on the hand? I, 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 don't, I don't think that. But let me tell you, if you're not managing your household, if you don't have a gauge to where you know what the temperature is spiritually of your family, and let's say your family, your children or whatever aren't believers, still, you're to create this context, you're to work in creating this culture to where, to where you set up the most probable scenario for your kids to come and to know Christ and for you to thrive as a Christian home. You can't control that. 
I can't control whether Calvin professes Jesus or not. I don't make these decrees. God does. But I still have a responsibility to create a context and a culture that is going to be the most potential or for the most potential scenario that Calvin would come to know Jesus or Sophia. So he says, the husbands love your wives as Christ loves the church. There's an agenda. Loving is leading. Loving is leading in a marriage context. Husbands labor to prepare their wives to meet Christ. Listen to verse 27. As if it's not hard enough to love your wife as Christ loves the church, which I know is impossible. Listen to this. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. I got ahead of myself, sorry. Verse uh, uh, 27. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Husbands, have you ever thought to yourself that what you're doing is preparing your wife to be presented to Jesus? <laughs> Women, do you want that on your plate? <laughs> no, you don't. You know, we don't want it. I mean, this, that's, it's wild. That's what's happening is the husband is loving in such a way so that when the bride, when it, our bride, when it, our wife are presented to Christ, they're without blemish and without spot. And then there, it, it, it's this wild, wild scenario in these expectations. But it's there because rightly loving one another, rightly living out these role distinctions is the best way to rightly image the Trinity, the relationship between Christ and his church and the gospel. We know that God takes these things very, very seriously. Husbands labor to create a culture within home that places a premium on Christ and the church. Husbands, do you lead your family in such a way that when all the dust settles, kids are grown, you're in the grave, and they say, what's his legacy? Do they say he placed a premium on Christ? He placed a premium on his church. He loved my mother well, and he loved us well. The husband should labor not to create behavioral patterns in his wife, but again, a disposition of joy in his wife towards helping him. Our lives are legacies in the making. So he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. We understand that loving our wives a part of that is making her ready to be presented to Jesus. But he says, love your wives as your own bodies. He says, for no one ever hated his flesh, but he nourishes and cherishes it. We understand that. Put in a corner, having to fend for ourselves, fend for our life, we'd fight tooth and nail because we love our lives. We love our life. Yeah, there's some messed up parts of it, but we love our life. It's exemplified by the fact that you take care of yourself. You eat meals every day because you don't want to die you love your wife so you love your life so he uses that and says okay so that's common everybody loves themselves in the same way husbands love your wife you wouldn't let her you wouldn't let yourself wither away and die so spiritually speaking why would you not fight to make sure that she doesn't and i think that applies spiritually and i think it applies physically husbands we would we would, we would do whatever it takes to survive in a situation. But I think the idea is that we would also do whatever it takes to make sure that our wives survive. I think women often resist male headship because we rule 
in tyrannical and self-serving fashion. And I don't blame any woman that doesn't want to follow her husband who is a tyrant, who is self-serving, self-seeking, unloving. The crazy man in the common area with a thousand people screaming, submit. I get it. I said last week that biblical manhood is more about godliness than it is about anything else. So let me read some of these, and I'll bring it, and, I'll, and, I'll, and this, is, this will be about it. And I borrowed these because I liked them so much. I'm just going to read them. I borrowed these from, from Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, um, the, the, the book that I presented to you all last week. So these are not mine. This is from the book. Mature masculinity expresses itself not in the demand to be served, but in the strength to serve and to sacrifice, specifically in your marriage, for the good of woman. So leadership is not about demanding service, man, but about moving forward towards a goal. If the goal is holiness in heaven, the leading, the leading will have the holy aroma of heaven about it. The demeanor of Christ. Men, mature masculinity does not assume the role of Christ over his wife, but it advocates it. You are not Jesus to your wife. Why? I've heard wives say that before. Oh, he's Jesus to me. No, he's not. <laughs> There's one Jesus, and you are not he, I promise you. Just like you're not David, just like you're not a lot of these people that people say you are. But you are, men, an advocate. You represent Jesus. By loving our wives as Christ loves the church, we don't become Christ, but we act as Christ would and on behalf of Christ as his advocate. Mature masculinity does not presume superiority, but mobilizes the strength of his wife. A mature man, biblically speaking, doesn't place his wife in a corner and, and, and he does all the work. But rather, he recognizes the complementary strength she provides, and he leans on them for, better, for, for, um, for the betterment of his marriage and the kingdom of God. That's a part of that complementary relationship. Mature masculinity does not have to initiate every action, but feels the responsibility to provide a general pattern of initiative. And, and that one is very important. Because my responsibility is to work to create a context in my home, a culture and a context where Christ is king, where the Bible matters, where truth matters, working on these worldview things. That is my ultimate responsibility, not just, I mean, and now we're spanning as a husband, as a father, all these things, but initially as a husband. But there's nothing wrong if my wife comes in and says, hey, are we going to do that 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 uh, you know that Bible study tonight? Or let's let's like the other day she 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 said, hey, why don't we uh, why don't we watch Pilgrim's Progress? You know, she took initiative. You know, it doesn't mean that oh she's usurped me. It doesn't mean that at all. So women, it doesn't mean that you don't have a voice. It doesn't mean that you don't step up. It doesn't mean that you don't act in those ways. Not at all. You're a helpmate. You help to to complementarily support the culture and the context that your husband is laboring and will be accountable for helping to establish. And you do that through your spirituality. You do that through loving your kids, praying for your kids, praying for your husband, speaking gospel truth to your husband, speaking gospel truth to your kids. Open the Bible with your kids. It's fine. That's not just your man's job. At the heart of maturity, uh, mature masculinity is a sense of responsibility to lead and provide for his family. Provision has more to do with leadership than it does finances. A marriage needs a man 
who provides eternal things more than it needs things that will eventually burn. And here's my compliment to Austin Jowers. I think of Austin Jowers as a, as, as a, as a real man. And here's why. He can, he can build anything from a, from a, from a well, here's, not, here's, not, not here's why, here's a statement. He can build anything from a house to a little offering box back there. You know, yeah, it infuriates me because it's easy for him and I'm, you know, not good at it. But the way he loves Leslie, the way he loves his kids, that is, I think, mature biblical masculinity. All right. So I say that, you know, as a, as a compliment to Austin. Right. And so and I think there are others that represent that in this room. I just I wanted to single out Austin because I see it all the time, you know, sitting in there reading books with his little girls. I'm like, well, I don't read so much to my kids, you know. I'm like, so Austin makes me look bad. I get it, but that's okay because he's a fantastic example. I think of what mature masculinity is. It's not just he can build stuff. That's not what it is. If we reduce masculinity to that, what does it say about so many of us? We never have any hope because we can't build a table like him in 13 years. You know, we can't do that. But we can love our spouses, men. We can do that well. Even as finite, broken, inconsistent, hypocritical, wrath-deserving idiots at times. We can still lead, and we can still love our wives well. And I think they will appreciate us for it. If the wife gradually, here's, let me read this. Failure to function and the biblical marital paradigm leads to casualties of the highest degree. And here's why. If the wife gradually withdraws her submission and the husband gradually withdraws his love or headship, the result is that Christ's glad or the church's glad submission to Christ is not modeled in the marriage. Simply put, when we don't function properly as husband and wife, we misrepresent Jesus. Not just Jesus, the Trinity. Not just the Trinity, but the gospel. And this is a big deal. So these things of marriage really matter. We strive to do our best in our respective roles. Failure to function in this capacity is failure to represent the gospel, Christ, and the Trinity. Wives, you must remember that you're submitting yourself to an imperfect man. Daily, his imperfections will surface. I hope you don't keep a record of wrong. But I bet if you did, you'd have a long list, <laughs> you know. But there has to be grace to let him succeed. There has to be grace to let us thrive, to let us lead. There has to be forgiveness and patience. doesn't mean that there's not some disputing. It doesn't mean that there's not some butting of heads. It doesn't mean that there's not some tears. We'll get into the communication and conflict next or in two weeks, I guess, with Austin because those things matter as response to our problems and then continuing to thrive and flourish. But we need grace. And men, you must remember that you are leading an imperfect woman. Therefore, an economy of grace is necessary. You're leading an imperfect woman. God has said, I've made these two beings fit for one another, perfect for one another. Sin disrupted that. So, though we pursue the ideal, the ideal can't fully be achieved because we're sinners, right? The ideal was created without sin, but there's sin now. But we still chase after that ideal. 
And it demands our patience. And it demands our grace. And it demands our encouragement. It demands admonishment. It demands communication. It demands conflict resolution. It demands intimacy in your marriage. It, de- it demands a, a, a sober disposition towards what God has made as this beautiful, beautiful design. And it's perfect. Absolutely perfect. So hopefully you can flesh out some of these application points in your missional community. Um, I'm sure you've, I think there's good fodder that's been provided to be able to kind of talk about those things. So we're going to pray, we're going to pray towards that end, that when your group meets, that these will be great conversations. For those of you that aren't married, if you're a part of one of those, that you can kind of glean from the experiential wisdom that is collected from these families that articulate working through these very unique, distinctive roles that we have as husband and wife. Let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, I'm fully aware that to say the things that I've said today outside of, maybe even to some degree for some sitting in here, I don't know, that it might be offensive or rub them a little the wrong way. I hope not. But I know for sure outside of these walls, this is not a popular talk, especially outside of evangelicalism and even in some pseudo-evangelical circles. Now, Lord, as best as we understand, it's right. You can't argue with the, with the text. And Father, we don't believe your standard changes. We, don't, we believe that there's a continuity between Genesis 1 and 2 and Ephesians 5. Father, we do believe that these things are written so that they are all kept together. Lord, that they are all unified to help in our biblical theological understanding of marriage. And I pray that you would help us to break down these basic but very difficult to honor truths and to honor them with our lives and in our marriages. Lord, for those that are in marriage, I pray for grace. I pray for peace in their marriages. I pray for a unified vision and trajectory that they might work towards these goals of representing you well. Father, I pray for those, whether young or older, in this room who are not yet married whether they have intention or no desire at all. I pray that these truths will settle in them so that whether in their marriage context or, or, or whether helping someone else in their marriage context, that they may be able to share these truths. That will make all the difference. We know that sin has marred what you have made as the ideal, what you have made to be beautiful and perfect. But Lord, help us to strive towards the ideal so that we might best represent you. In Jesus' name, amen.